Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. If you wake up in the morning, you're like, I don't feel 1000% energetic, happy, alive, the weight you want, ready to just go out and live your highest truth, then you should probably dig into your metabolic health. Even people who are feeling that way should dig into their metabolic health. Because if you think about that framework that we just talked about of this root, this trunk of the tree of so many sayings, like we all need to know where we stand on that. The first order issue in the body, is it powered? Is it in? Everyone needs to know that. Hello, hello. I'm your host for today, Dr. Carrie Jones, and I am so honored to have on the Dr. Casey Means. She is a Stanford-trained physician who was also the chief medical officer and co-founder of Levels Health. Now, Levels is a metabolic insight company that uses a continuous glucose monitor, which I can't wait for you to hear about because Dr. Means' mission in life is to help maximize human performance and potential through reversing chronic disease. Dr. Means goes into cellular metabolism. If you've been feeling like your batteries are kind of running and low, (laughs) everything just feels low, your fatigue, your brain fog, your digestion, your hormones, your hair growth, everything just feels dialed down, this is the episode for you. Cellular metabolism is not about weight loss, which is what everybody just goes right to. Dr. Means explains that cellular metabolism is how we take our food, how we take our supplements, and convert that into energy that goes out and does the things, turns the lights on, changes the batteries in our body. But if you're not feeling that way, you're wondering why everything just feels less than in the different systems of your body, or maybe you're having an overreactive reaction because the opposite system that's supposed to calm or slow things down is underpowered. Again, this is the episode for you. Dr. Means is gonna dive into cellular health and practical tactical information on how we can improve the ability of our lights to switch on, our batteries to get revved up, our energy to be made, our metabolism. So make sure you listen and follow along because I think you're gonna learn a lot. In addition to that, Levels has a giveaway. If you go to levels.link backslash root cause giveaway and enter your email, you could be up for an annual membership and a one month supply of a continuous glucose monitor. So you wanna do it now, you wanna enter now, don't wait because the drawing is gonna happen one week from the release date, which is today. So make sure you go to levels.link backslash root cause giveaway. That will also be in the show notes and you can enter to win. So follow along. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course, are supplements. There is a lot of confusion around supplements and you only wanna take the best quality that uses top tier certified manufacturers and most importantly, do third party independent testing to make sure what's on the label is in the capsule. That's why I've teamed up with New Ethics Formulations as their chief medical officer. The team already had a strong history in the supplement world, but started the company to really focus on bettering your health and helping to enhance your physique or performance goals. I'm excited to help them continue to focus on the endocrine system and hormones as it relates to glucose, thyroid, estrogen, and even your gut microbiome. Right now, you can get 20% off one order using code DRJONES20 at newethics.com. That's drjones20 at newethics.com today. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Casey Means, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Girl, I'm so excited to have you on today. Dr. Carrie Jones, I am so excited to be here. It is always just such an honor and pleasure to talk to you. I can't wait for this convo. As a fellow former Oregonian and a tall person, I was like, Casey and I have to be best friends when I met her initially because not a lot of people realize, one, how tall I am. When they meet me in person, they're like, man, you're really tall. And then I met Casey and I'm like, oh, another tall person and an Oregonian and into the medicine, like obvious besties, like instant besties. (laughs) Tall women definitely stick together. It's like you see each other across the room and it's like, oh, you've been through the same things. Yes, yes. <laughs> you get it, you get it. You've had to shop for those long pants. Yeah. Also, what you are absolutely the queen expert at is metabolic health. And 
I have learned an immense amount from you, from your company levels. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because as we were saying off camera, and this is where I want women to lean in and listen, you may not understand the word metabolic health, but I am 46. In perimenopause, I have a continuous glucose monitor in my arm. Why? Because things are changing. I'm not changing. I am now. But like my diet lifestyle, I thought was pretty good. I walk my walk. I walk my medicine. If you met me and hung out with me, you'd realize, yeah, she really does stuff she talks about. And yet when your hormones shift, your glucose, insulin, heart, cardiometabolic stuff shifts. And it's not fun, Casey. It's not fun. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I see like there's so much to it. And it's honestly just starting to come out the past couple of years because of people like you who are sharing this information and it's invaluable. I can't wait to dig into all of it. The first thing I have to ask for the people who don't realize or know, when we talk or when you talk about metabolic health, when you are seeing somebody, your friend, whatever, hey, we talk about metabolic health, what do you mean? What are we grasping onto? The way I think about metabolic health is that metabolism is how you convert food to energy in the body. We have trillions of cells, somewhere between 40 and 100 trillion cells in our body. And every single one needs energy to function properly. The way we make that energy is our metabolic processes. If we are metabolically healthy, we are efficiently making energy in the body to power every cellular reaction. Trillions and trillions of cells. Inside every single cell, there are trillions of reactions happening every second. Every single one is powered by energy. And there's this special energy form that is called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which I think of as like the coin that you have to put in the machine for every single chemical reaction to happen. And if that is not being produced properly or efficiently, that is metabolic dysfunction. And that will cause all sorts of problems in the body because an underpowered body is a body that does not function properly. And then you get symptoms and disease. Interestingly, in the past hundred years or so, as our world has become more modernized and industrialized and advanced. And one repercussion of a lot of the changes is that our diets and our lifestyles and our environmental exposures have changed drastically. And we're in this unique moment in history where almost every aspect of our diet, lifestyle, and environmental exposures are synergistically hurting the machinery inside the cells that make ATP. It's like this perfect storm that's leading to essentially an epidemic of underpowered cells, underpowered bodies in the Western world. And this is a root cause of almost every chronic disease that is killing Americans today. We know that nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States are fundamentally related to or directly rooted in metabolic dysfunction, a problem with how we power ourselves because of the way that this machinery in ourselves is being hurt by our environment. And the only one on that list that is not directly related to metabolism is deaths by accidents, basically. I was like, is it accidents? <laughs> yeah. It's accidents. Alzheimer's dementia, cancer, type 2 diabetes, chronic liver disease, even chronic kidney disease, the heart disease, of course, the number one killer for men and women. These are all fundamentally directly related to metabolic dysfunction. And then as it pertains to women across the entire woman's lifespan, what we're learning more and more is that at each stage, there are issues that we're facing, which are being very poorly managed by the mainstream medical establishment through our normal tools of drugs or procedures that are actually super tied to metabolism. This is things like infertility and polycystic ovarian syndrome in the you know, 20s to 30s to 40s. And then worse, menopause symptoms as we get into perimenopause and menopause, weight gain, and the outpacing of women in terms of obesity as compared to men postmenopausally when our estrogen declines and metabolic health immediately gets worse. Then getting into older age where women outpace men on Alzheimer's dementia two to one, which is now being called type three diabetes, deeply rooted in metabolic dysfunction in the brain. Women also outpace men on depression, which is we're, if the recent book by Chris Palmer out of Harvard called Brain Energy talking about the metabolic pathways that can lead to mental illness, even things in teenage years like acne, fundamentally rooted in metabolic dysfunction. So across the whole lifespan for things that really create issues for women, we need to be looking through a metabolic lens. And if we're metabolically healthy, we're producing energy properly in our cells, a lot of these issues melt away in terms of 
our higher risk for them. That's metabolic health and a little bit of how it pertains to women's health across the lifetime. I know people listening are like, check, check, check. Yep, that's me. Check, 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 check. Now, for those listening, Casey is, her background is as a conventional medical doctor and then pivoted and got into this. She is 100% aware of what you've probably come across when you went to go see your GP or your PCP. And again, I am not slamming them or dissing them. When you go in for six minutes, they don't have a lot of time to talk to you about metabolic health. It's, is it acute? What can they fix? And then move on. But what made you pivot out of conventional into functional now that you know all this? I trained as an ear, nose, and throat head and neck surgeon. I did four years of medical school at Stanford, as mainstream and conventional as you get, and then surgery for five years. And for me, it was this, it was a confluence of things. But one is that I've always been a bit more holistically minded. I've always been in awe of food. I actually studied nutrigenomics in college. And this is this concept of how food chemicals can change our gene expression is an example. We eat turmeric, it has curcumin in it. Curcumin actually is a genetic regulator of the NF-kappa B genetic pathway, meaning it literally a chemical in food binds to our genome and changes expression of inflammatory pathways. I was like, whoa. I thought from high school biology that our genes were our destiny. Actually, what we're putting in our mouth is changing the expression, the folding, even the repair of mutations in this. It's much different than I had thought. So I came to medicine with that sort of like awe and inspiration about the power of food, the power of exposures. Flash forward, they go into the surgical world and the concept of food wasn't even present. Not only was it not even present, it was discouraged to talk about. Medicine is about volume. It's about how many patients can you see and how much can you do to them? Because fundamentally, that's how you bill. It was just like having a 30-minute conversation with a patient about their diet and how that might be related to their sinusitis. That's basically pro bono work. You could spend the time with them, but then you're behind on the other patients. This is truly not built into the system and you also don't learn about it. It doesn't make it into the guidelines. Not a single mention of food in the head and neck surgery guidelines for treating different conditions. That's what I came into and I'm like, what is going on? I know there's power here and it is absent. Then I'm on a few surgical rotations like my sinusitis rotation as a resident in surgery. And what I'm realizing, I'm like in my fifth surgery of the day, And I honestly, there was one day that I truly felt like I had an out-of-body experience. And I was like, I'm on my fifth surgery of the day. And what I do in this surgery is I look into the nose and it's full of inflamed tissue. Sinusitis is chronic inflammation of the nasal tissues. And I'm basically a plumber. I'm busting holes. I'm sucking out pus. I'm creating bigger orifices for things to drain. But I'm not actually doing anything about the inflammation in the tissue. I'm actually not asked to think about or equipped to think about what's causing that inflammation. It's not coming from nowhere. I'm a plumber. I'm not actually treating the root cause of this. And that floored me. And I almost became very quickly, like almost really hesitant and adverse to operating because I'm like, what if there's another way? Surgery is morbid. Like you make someone unconscious. They are naked on a table, surrounded by people. It's tens of thousands of dollars. The recovery sucks. And so many people end up coming back for revision surgeries. I got this bee in my bonnet of, is there anything else we could be doing addressing that underlying inflammation before we cut their face open? That is what ultimately was the initial spark of going down a completely different path, which I'm now, what is it, six (laughs) years later, and I am a metabolic evangelist. And the link between those two things, which I'll share quickly, is that I basically realized as an ENT doctor, I was essentially an inflammation doctor. In medicine, as the suffix itis is inflammation. What are you treating in ENT? Sinusitis, mastoiditis, peritidis, cellulitis, thyroiditis, otitis. It is itis of everything, uveitis. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm an inflammation doctor. I prescribe steroids all day long, every day, which are fundamentally, they turn down inflammation. And I don't know where this inflammation is coming from. That led me down this journey towards metabolic health because if you think about a body that is underpowered, a cell that cannot make the energy to do its work, what that cell does is it actually sends out alarm signals saying, I have a problem, I am in distress, I cannot do my work properly, and that recruits the immune system. And the reason that cell is not able to make energy properly is not some inherent problem with the cell. It's a problem with all these external factors that are coming into the body through 
food, water, air, lifestyle factors, and environmental factors, and hurting the machinery in the cell that's actually supposed to create energy. So you've got this distressed cell, and then it recruits the immune system to help. And then the immune system, in its best effort trying to help, is basically sending out all these inflammatory mediators that creates all these problems in our tissues. It's like a war. It's a yeah. war. Yeah. But the crazy part is they can't help because the immune system can't go out and stop you from eating the donut. The immune system can't go out and tell you to not put the artificially scented lotion on your body. The immune cell can't tell you to get morning sunlight. It can't put you to bed earlier. It can't get you off the blue light at midnight. It can't do these things. You have a really good intention system trying to help a distressed cell that's metabolically dysfunctional that cannot fix the problem, which is outside of you, and therefore creates a chronic problem that ultimately leads to mass destruction in the body And that is our chronic disease and symptom epidemic we're dealing with today. And it will not get fixed with any medication. It will only get fixed by changing the environment in which your body lives so that the metabolic machinery inside the cells are freed up to do their work. That was the link between ENT and metabolic health and what I feel like I was put on this earth to share. Because I think if we address the chronic disease epidemic with the wrong lens, we are never going to fix it. We have to have a metabolic lens or we're going to just keep using suboptimal tools that might make you give you glimmers of hope, but aren't actually fixing the core problem, which is mitochondrial dysfunction, that machinery inside the cell being broken. And I love that you said that your body inherently is trying to help you. Because you know a lot of women and men feel that they're at war with their body, however that looks. And it's I don't blame them when you are feeling terrible, when you have 10 out of 10 symptoms and you are like, what is wrong with my body? And the body's like, girl, I am just trying to help. But these are these external factors that I can't change for you. And it's really screwing up the system. And I love that because a lot of hope health and healing is right there. People listening going, I have no hope. And it's, oh no, Dr. Casey's about ready to tell you about a ton of hope. You can make change, absolutely. Yeah, 100%, yes. Of course, as everyone is listening and they're checking all the boxes off, they're like, yep, 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 I have that. But where do I start? What do I test? And I want everyone to know that she's probably gonna mention things that are more comprehensive and more advanced than you're used to. And that's the point. You were underpowered, under energy. You probably have had some basic blood work, told you're normal. You don't feel normal. Let's really get into it and help people. I would basically go as far to say that if you have any symptoms, basically, if you wake up in the morning, you're like, I don't feel 1000% energetic, happy, alive, the weight you want, ready to just go out and live your highest truth, then you should probably dig into your metabolic health. Even people who are feeling that way should dig into their metabolic health because. If you think about that framework that we just talked about of this root, this trunk of the tree of so many things, like we all need to know where we stand on that. The first order issue in the body, is it powered? Is it plugged in? Everyone needs to know that. But if you do have symptoms, fatigue, any of the things we talked about, really in any system of the body, this is an area to dig into. Maybe you'll find nothing. Maybe you'll find that your metabolic health is perfect, but at least you have gone down that path to understand whether underpowering is part of the problem. That's just one thing I would say. There's really no one who this isn't relevant to. Then moving into what to do. Really, the first step, I think, is lab testing. And fortunately, with most insurance plans, you get standard basic blood work. You can get it every year for free. And you can learn so much from your standard lab work that is basically free if you look at it through the right lens. We actually have a blog post on the Levels blog called The Ultimate Guide to Understanding Your Cholesterol and Metabolic Health Labs. Maybe we can link to it. It's one of the best pieces of content, I think, on the internet for just like you print it out and you sit with it with your lab results that you got from your doctor, basic labs, and learn how to interpret them to answer the question, how is my metabolic health? I want every American in the country or anyone internationally listening to be able to answer the question, where am I on the spectrum of metabolic health? first test that can help you with that is fasting glucose. This is just, it costs like $5 and you can do it with a finger prick or you can do it from a vein drop. But what would be considered non-diabetic is less than 100 milligrams per deciliter. That is too high of a number. You want your fasting glucose to probably between, be somewhere between 70 and 85 milligrams per deciliter. You want it on the lower end of normal. That would be like the 70 to 85 range. We know that as fasting glucose starts going up, even within the normal range, towards the pre-diabetic range, which is 100 to 125, 
people start to have more problems down the road with things like stroke, heart disease, future risk of type 2 diabetes. Keep it in the lower half of that range. That's number one. You very well may go into the doctor and have a fasting glucose of 99 or even in the low pre-diabetic range and your doctor may say nothing. Look at your tests yourself and don't just accept like things look fine. The second thing that you're going to see on a totally basic lab work is a cholesterol panel. This is total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, triglycerides, HDL cholesterol. You can get a lot of information from this. The two that I actually think are the most important within that is the triglycerides and the HDL cholesterol. Triglycerides are fascinating because they generally reflect how your body is processing excess carbohydrates in a way. And it's complicated, but basically if that number is high, it is a sign that there may be some issue in this sort of blood sugar, metabolic insulin nexus that needs to be addressed. On a lab slip, they're going to say less than 150 milligrams per deciliter is normal triglycerides. But the research really suggests that actually less than 100, even less than 70 milligrams per deciliter, half of what the normal range is probably where you want to stand. I've been in the 40s for years, and that's not to brag, it's just that I eat a lot of stuff, but I'm eating through a metabolic lens. And when you do that, it's actually not that hard to keep triglycerides down. If you're creeping above 100, it's really something to focus on and not to jump to solutions right now, but it's like cut the liquid sugar, the sodas, juice, refined carbohydrates, refined sugars, anything with high fructose corn syrup and alcohol. Those are the things that are going to all just overwhelm your body and make you basically become a factory of manufacturing triglycerides. And we know that triglycerides are even more so than LDL, which is the cholesterol that's we often call the bad cholesterol. Triglycerides actually have a higher risk ratio of risk of heart disease than even LDL. We have diminished their importance in the panel in part because we don't have a good medication for triglycerides. We do have statins for LDL. We have undervalued its importance, but that's one everyone should dial in on. The third is high density lipoprotein cholesterol, which is HDL, which is often called like the good cholesterol. And on a panel, it'll often say that above 40 or 45, depending if you're a man or a woman, is normal. This is the one part of the cholesterol panel you want higher. And the research actually suggests that getting it between more like 60 and 90, like much higher, is actually a really good sign. If you're at 41 and your doctor says, oh, great, your HDL is in the normal range, like got to think a little bit deeper. You want to really push it higher. And that's an important one. Those are three. And then LDL is definitely an important test. This is the bad cholesterol, but LDL is complicated. As we know, if you look at it just on its own, because there are multiple LDL particle types that live in the blood, which are all put together into that total LDL number. And some of those particle types promote heart disease and some actually don't. You might be someone who has a high LDL, but a lot of the particles are actually the non-atherogenic type, the one that are going to clog the arteries. It's hard to know what to do with that number. And for someone who had maybe a slightly higher LDL than what's considered normal, but their triglycerides are 40 and their HDL is 85, I'd be like, this actually looks like a pretty okay panel. And let's say their fasting glucose is quite low. I would assume from that, that they probably have a higher ratio of that sort of less problematic LDL type. You can test that with what's called advanced lipid testing and actually get the fractionated particles but that test isn't accessible to everyone. If it is, go for it. If your doctor's up for getting you an advanced lipid NMR lipid panel, that's awesome. But I'm trying to stick to some of the tests that like everyone's gonna basically have access to. The other couple of tests that I think can be really helpful to ask your doctor for that are not necessarily going to be ordered are fasting insulin. This test is like $15. Literally, it's so cheap. And Doctors will push back against ordering this because it's just not part of our standard guidelines. Send them the blog post that I mentioned. We actually have language in there that basically helps show your doctor why it's important. And the reason fasting insulin is such an important test is because the body, as this mitochondrial function, this metabolic machinery gets gummed up and damaged by our diet and lifestyle, the body essentially is like, okay, this cell is not doing a good job of converting food to energy. The mitochondria is hurt and the body can't make that ATP well. What it's going to do is actually block that cell from taking in more stuff from the bloodstream to convert to ATP. And one of those things is glucose. It's going to say, stop bringing glucose into the cell because we can't convert it. We're a broken cell. And the way the body does that is it blocks the hormone insulin that lets glucose into the cell. Again, it's the body trying to protect itself from being overwhelmed 
the body becomes insulin resistant. The cell says, I can't take that glucose in, so block the insulin signal at the receptor. And then the body's like, nope, we can't have all this glucose floating around the bloodstream. We got to get into the cells. So it produces more insulin to overcompensate for the block and try and drive the glucose into the cells. And then of course that happens. Glucose will get driven into the cell for a while. And of course, then gets turned into triglycerides. But it's just this compensatory thing that's happening as the body basically, the cell is becoming broken. It's trying to protect itself. It does that through insulin resistance. The body responds by saying, nope, we're going to produce more insulin to basically overcome this. And that's this early shit show of metabolic dysfunction. You can pick that up by testing fasting insulin. Because if your insulin is starting to rise, it is a clear sign that this internal milieu of the cell is problematic. What's really interesting is that for maybe 10, 15 years before fasting glucose starts rising, insulin might be much, much, much higher, but your body is actually compensating and driving that insulin into the cell so the blood glucose actually looks normal. I think this example is helpful. Let's say you and I, Carrie, had a fasting glucose of 80 and our doctor said to us, oh my God, you both are super metabolically healthy. You both have a fasting glucose of 80. That's amazing. If I'm really becoming metabolically dysfunctional and insulin resistant, my insulin might be 20, which is very high, basically to keep my glucose at 80. And let's say you're super metabolically healthy. Your fasting insulin might be two. Your body's insulin is two and you keep your glucose at 80 and mine is 20 to keep it at 80. I am gonna go on to probably develop the infertility, the type 2 diabetes, the bad hot flash symptoms, the Alzheimer's dementia, the depression, the fatigue, and you're not. And we would not know that if we did not have that fasting insulin check. That's one to really encourage your doctor to get. And I think the last one I'll mention that I think doctors will often order if asked is the high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker. And this gets back to the conversation about ENT and inflammation often people who are on this metabolic dysfunction spectrum will have that revving up of the immune system that's trying to help. And that can be reflected in this marker called HSCRP, which is a nonspecific inflammatory marker. We really want to keep that less than one milligram per liter, but even lower is better. If the lab reports on values less than one, sometimes it doesn't, it'll just say less than one, but at less than 0.3 is actually even better. And some labs might even say one to three is okay, borderline, that's way too high. If your CRP is one to three, there is an inflammatory process going on in the body. You really want to keep that less than one. Those tests together could be a great set to get every year to just have that snapshot picture of where do I stand. There's other tests as well, hemoglobin O1C, ApoB, uric acid, a few others, but the ones that I suggested are ones that are cheap. Your doctor will probably order for you and you can definitely interpret them on your own. If you don't automatically have a portal where they drop your lab work in for you, request it. Sign the form and request your own lab work so that if you get told, quote unquote, it's normal, you can listen to this, read the blog on levels and go back and like hand write out. What does Casey say? What did they say on levels? And what did you run? And where is your result? And the number of times, and I know you hear this too, I see it in the comments on levels, the number of times people are like, I was told I was normal and my fasting glucose was 103. I was told I was normal and my insulin was 23. I was told I was normal and my HSCRP was 2.6 or whatever. And this is like, I could see why they were told they were normal from a conventional standpoint, but from a thrive, let's reduce chronic disease risk standpoint, not so much. That makes me recall a study that was done, I think, maybe last year or the year before that looked at USPSTS, United States Preventive Service Task Force data set of prediabetes. And one wild statistic is that in the US right now, 50% of American adults have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, full 50% of adults. And now almost 30% of teens have prediabetes. This is absolutely Ugh. astonishing. It should be zero. It should be zero. And of those, about 90 million, but the 128 million American adults who have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, and of those, about 90 million are prediabetic. And of those, 90% don't know they have it. You've got essentially fairly advanced metabolic dysfunction because once you tip into fasting glucose in the 100 to 125 range, that insulin resistance has probably been going on for like over a decade. 
where you've been in that compensatory time where the insulin's high. And only after that sort of goes off the rails is the fasting glucose going to really start to go up, up into that prediabetes range. That is unequivocally metabolic dysfunction, prediabetes. It's, there's nothing pre about it. There's a study done that looked at 20,000 patients that were eligible for prediabetes screening, which is done through like fasting glucose tests and hemoglobin A1C. And of those 21,000 people, I believe only 5% who had prediabetes were actually accurately diagnosed, even told they had a diagnosis and it was recorded in the chart. And of those, zero people out of 21,500 people got appropriate prediabetes treatment. Zero out of 21,500. Not one, not a single person. I'm like, how is this not front page news? Not only are we not talking about it, we're not screening for it properly. We have no clue how to treat it as a medical community. And we're not sending people to the right resources to do. It's astonishing. But this is why people really need to take it in their own hands. And something that we've done at Levels, which is one of the things I'm most proud of with the company, is we're very committed to helping make it accessible for everyone to understand what their level of metabolic health is. In addition to our continuous glucose monitoring offering, which is like our core offering, helping people understand their blood sugar levels in real time and learn from that, we also have a, lab, a blood work panel that is around $100. So it's quite affordable. And you go, you walk into a lab, you get your blood taken. It's five key biomarkers, many of which we've talked about. It's fasting insulin, triglycerides, hemoglobin A1C, which is like a 30-day average of blood sugar levels, uric acid, and ApoB, which is an advanced cholesterol marker, part of that advanced lipid testing. We worked with our advisory board to basically come up with what are the five tests of all the tests that together can really give you a high fidelity snapshot of where you stand right now and how can we make it at a price point that people could do three or four times a year without ever having to talk to their primary care doctor and basically beg that person to order these tests for them, which we all know can be like such a hassle. So that's a new offering that we have that ideally will just create more accessibility around these lab tests. And then of course, helps you interpret them through the app with optimal ranges and all of that. I just saw that on the website when I was on the Levels website a couple of days ago. And I was like, this is genius. First of all, I'm a big fan of Levels and anything Casey does. But second of all, when I saw that on the site, I was like, yes, accessibility is huge. And again, I have love-hate with social media because it can be extremely toxic. It is also oddly taught me how to be an adult. There's a lot of things I didn't know how to do that I've learned through social media. Weird things, fix things in my house, Apparently, I've been doing eyeliner wrong. All these funny things that I like. <laughs> I learned it on social media, thank God. But it's also gotten a lot of accessibility for people who are like, I want to take this into my own hands. I want to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And I'm struggling with the care plan they're in or the clinic they go to or the PPO they're a part of or whatever it is. I love to have this accessibility and this education. Here, be your own superhero. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. For sure. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, and then we're going to get into like, okay, what do we do? But if you would just touch on, we have a lot of female listeners, right? So the big transitions, pregnancy and perimenopause, how do these big transitions affect our metabolic health? Because it's never talked about until it's too late. And I want to stop that. I love that. I'm on that same mission with you. And it's fascinating because women have unique challenges as they face optimal metabolic health throughout their lifetime because this whole insulin, mitochondrial health, glucose, vascular health, nexus, inflammation is actually super tied with our sex hormones, estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. Men have a very different situation where it's more consistent levels throughout a lifetime. Women, of course, estrogen drops massively in menopause. And this actually really creates a huge hit on our insulin sensitivity, our cells actually ability to pick up that insulin signal. The ability to clear glucose out of the bloodstream is problematic. And you can imagine that creates two problems. One, it's more glucose in the bloodstream, which in and of itself, high glucose levels in the bloodstream is problematic because it sticks to things and it causes inflammation and it causes other problems. But also you're not getting enough of that glucose into the cells to then create energy. You've got an underpowered body. And of course, for anyone postmenopausal listening, it's like the fatigue rates in postmenopausal women are so high, of course, because if we're not getting on top of this metabolic health picture before and during and after menopause, we'll slip into problems. In terms of the transitions through a woman's life, 
there's three maybe to focus on pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, and then menopause. Pre-pregnancy, we're just like cycling females and we're having our period each month for those of us who are cycling. And what's interesting is that our insulin sensitivity actually changes within the month. Pre-ovulation follicular phase tends to be a more insulin sensitive phase of the cycle. And then luteal phase, post-ovulation, pre-menstruation tends to be a little bit more insulin resistant. And that has something to do with the balance of estrogen and progesterone in each of those phases. There have been studies to show that people wearing continuous glucose monitors or doing other metabolic testing during different phases of the cycle will actually be more insulin resistant and maybe have higher fasting glucose levels, post-meal glucose levels in that late luteal phase. That's something to keep in mind because we want to keep glucose in a reasonably stable range. We feel better when glucose is more of these like gentle ups and downs rather than the huge spikes and valleys. With those huge spikes and valleys after meals, we get post-meal fatigue, we have more anxiety, we have more cravings. It's a total superpower to figure out how to stabilize that during the day. And it's going to be harder during the luteal phase, which is also ironic because that's when we have more cravings and we like want more carbs. I think a lot about that though, because I don't want to add fuel to the fire of emotional ability and stuff during that phase. I tend to go a little more keto, not full keto. I mean more I watch my complex carbs a little bit more in the luteal phase. I actually stop eating maybe a little bit later. I stop eating earlier in the evening so that I'm not eating calories later at night, which is often when we actually see bigger glucose spikes. I will do more post-meal walks, gentle walks to clear the sugar out of the bloodstream. Muscles soak up glucose just profoundly. Taking those post-meal walks after every meal. And then more generally, just always doing some resistance training not super heavy duty, but just making sure that I'm continuing to build that muscle, which is like the ultimate glucose sink in the body so that my body is just primed and ready to take glucose out of the bloodstream. Walks, less late night snacking, more protein so that I'm satiated and I'm diminishing the cravings, all that stuff. And I like to do that all month, but I really try and focus on that in the luteal phase so that like as I'm going into menstruation, that I feel better when I'm sleeping better. And there's a lot of other stuff you could do. You could do vinegar before meals. You could do If people are into supplements, there's berberine, there's cinnamon, there's all these other strategies. And we've got lots of blog posts about that. But I like to focus on the core basics, which is like the well-balanced meals, making sure I get sleep, moving my body, building muscle, all that stuff. So that's one thing in terms of like cycling females. And then also just another thing on early life stuff, a lot of teens are dealing with a lot of stress about their skin and acne. I dealt with that for 10 years from my teens into my 20s. And the crazy thing is that we're throwing the kitchen sink of medications at women just for skin problems. And what we've learned more and more over the last decade is that so much of the root cause of acne and many other skin conditions, there's over a dozen skin conditions that are directly linked to insulin resistance. That is something that can absolutely be significantly improved with data to support it by eating a lower glycemic, lower blood sugar spiking meal plan. For women listening who might be dealing with skin issues, my first line of defense is investigating metabolic health, looking at insulin and glucose levels, and keeping the blood sugar spikes down. Insulin and insulin growth factor, two hormones that are associated with the glucose response and metabolic health, as they're higher, they're anabolic hormones. Insulin is ultimately an hormone that makes you build things. If you think about it, if insulin is being released in the body, it's a sign to the body that there's lots of glucose around. We got to do something with that glucose. So it's build fat, build triglycerides, build this stuff. Insulin is anabolic on many different tissues, and it actually tells the oil-producing glands of the hair follicle to produce more oil. It's this cross-effect that's happening in the skin that makes you pump out more oil. Super motivating in terms of getting your insulin levels down and keeping getting rid of the refined grains, refined sugars that are such a big part of our American diet because it can actually have a direct effect on skin. So that's like a pre-pregnancy peak. We get into pregnancy. God, we could just spend multiple episodes <laughs> talking about this. But what I would say at a high level is pregnancy is one of the most energy intensive things that we are going to do in our lifetime. We're building a human. We're 3D printing life. We're building a whole new organ, a placenta. Everything's changing. Physiology changes. And interestingly, pregnancy in and of itself is an insulin resistant state. You actually become more insulin resistant during pregnancy in part to channel resources towards the fetus. You already have this hit in pregnancy. So if you are coming into pregnancy with preceding light metabolic issues that you might not even be aware of, that can tip you into gestational diabetes. It can contribute to having an extra large baby, basically, which is called fetal macrosomia. I believe that's over an eight pound, three ounce baby. It's eight pounds, 13 ounces is considered fetal macrosomia, which literally means 
big bodied baby, macrosomia. And I was one of those babies. I was 11 pounds, nine ounces. But we know that metabolic dysfunction in the mother can lead to bigger babies because even though insulin doesn't cross the placenta, glucose does and can actually create some insulin resistance in the baby that creates a bigger baby. That's interesting. We also know that placental function and placental dysfunction, which is associated with fetal health and miscarriage rate, is very tied to metabolic health. We want that placenta to be energetically super functional. And even for people pursuing IVF or other assisted reproductive technologies, being oddly metabolically healthy as you go into that is leads to much higher chances of success, a successful pregnancy. There's all that. And then for people just trying to conceive, the leading cause of infertility in the United States is ultimately a metabolic disorder. It's polycystic ovarian syndrome. And with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which the stats range based on what you're looking at, but anywhere between maybe 10% and 26% of women globally, it's a huge amount of women. And one of the hallmarks of this disease is that high insulin levels in the body are actually stimulating the ovarian theca cells to produce more testosterone, more androgens. You're actually having a metabolic hormone telling the ovaries to produce more of a quote-unquote male hormone, which then perturbs the delicate balance of estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, leads to potentially cycle abnormalities, ovulation abnormalities, et cetera. In addition to all the other symptoms of PCOS, it can be really unpleasant, like weight gain and the majority of women who have PCOS by the time they're 40 will have type 2 diabetes. These are very linked. PCOS is an interesting one from what causes it standpoint because it is known that there's a lot of genetic links that are leading to this insulin resistance. It's being dealt a really rough card. But we also know from the research that lifestyle and dietary techniques, even if it is, let's say it's fully genetic, there's nothing that anyone could have done to make this happen or not happen. Research suggests that dietary and lifestyle strategies are powerful enough to reverse the condition in many women. And there's some studies actually showing that in 12 weeks of essentially like a low glycemic, whole foods, polyphenol, plant-rich diet with high quality, small amounts of animal protein, but unlimited quantities of leafy greens and low glycemic vegetables, plus a polyphenol, like basically plant chemical supplement was enough to reverse the a lot of the hormonal abnormalities in PCOS, just 12 weeks and people on average in that study lost 22 pounds. No matter what it's being caused from, I think the hopeful message is that dietary and lifestyle strategies can definitely help with PCOS. That's just like a lot around the pregnancy landscape, but I just think there's really no better thing that a woman can do maybe a year before thinking about conceiving than get the full metabolic panel, understand where you're at, and yeah, try to think about some of the micro-optimizations of diet and lifestyle that can just help make the whole process more pleasant and more successful. And the same is true for the man, although that's not probably out of scope for this conversation, but male metabolic health is directly related to sperm quality and sperm quantity. And 50% of infertility is male infertility, which does not get talked about enough. I think it's BS. And men need to be focusing on super dialing their metabolic health and losing their belly fat to have the best chances of success for highest quality and quantity sperm. That's just the reality. Men, there's a study out of Harvard where men who are dealing with obesity have an 80% higher chance than normal weight men of having zero sperm in their semen, literally zero sperm. And if they're overweight, it's, I believe, a 42% decreased chance. It's like a straight line of normal weight, more likely to have strong sperm, a lot of them. Overweight, that goes down. And then obese, 80% decreased chance of having a single sperm in the semen. Oh, yeah. That's wild. That's pregnancy. I'll pause there. We can talk more <laughs> about menopause. It astounds me. I think about this constantly because I didn't learn one iota of this in medical school. And I am 35. All my friends are either getting pregnant, just had kids. There's so much talk about the struggles around this miscarriages, infertility. And I just wish people had this information about the fact that there's actually, there is a lever that we can pull that's in our control and it's metabolic health. And it's interesting, I was talking with my apprenticeship the other day, we were talking about art-assisted reproductive technology and a client case we were discussing and we were discussing, we're really glad it exists and it's available, IUI, IVF, Columbia, we're glad it's out there. But because we felt, we saw as clinicians, a lot of people just getting pushed in that direction 
and not addressing their metabolic health, not addressing these foundational things that yay, we're glad you're pregnant, but also damn, there's a lot to clean up and a lot that can potentially go wrong with to deal with during pregnancy, postpartum, and then beyond that. And if they got any education, if any of these clinics or centers or reproductive endocrinologists could work with them, or if this message got out there stronger every day, they're absolutely trying just to know if the metabolic health, just like you said, the metabolic health lever, if we could just pull that, wow, what a difference it really could make. Yeah. Huge. Infertility rates globally in the US specifically are going up every year. I believe the statistic, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's going up by like a fraction of a percent every year, just infertility rates. And we just have to stop and scratch our heads a little bit. What does that mean for the human species? What does that mean about the way we're living? Our bodies have the ultimate intelligence of knowing what's going on around us and responding. They're always trying to protect us. And right now, the way the body's responding is saying, we're not going to let you make a baby. That's pretty crazy. And we should be all stopping and thinking about that. There was a New York Times article that said that sperm count is down 50% since the 1970s. Hello? This is like cataclysmic level. How do we think the curve is going to continue going? Things aren't getting better and necessary. I mean, there are some positive trends with people's interest in healthy food and sustainable farming and movement. But fundamentally, health is actually getting worse every year in our country. Life expectancy is going down and infertility is going up. We just need to be... T- I don't understand why this is not on the front page of the New York Times, but we're doing our best here to get the <laughs> message out. Yeah. This is where we're at. Before I ask you about levels, of course, we do have to touch on the perimenopause menopause shift because you could be super metabolically sound, or so you think. Everything's good. You walk, you're doing your things and you head into perimenopause and then menopause, where everything shifts, biochemistry, physiologically, anatomy, and you're like, what the heck? Let's talk about how that can be a real change for a lot of women. Postmenopausally, women are generally going to become more insulin resistant because of the way that estrogen impacts insulin sensitivity. And I think one thing that's interesting around menopause symptoms is that one of the symptoms that people deal with, I think, can be just debilitating is like the hot flashes and the vasomotor symptoms. And there's been some really interesting research around that and how those symptoms actually might relate to blood sugar and metabolic health. The ones that I'm most familiar with was like there was a study, it was like 150,000 postmenopausal women that they followed for 20 years and saw that hot flashes and night sweats, if you had the presence of those symptoms, that was linked to the 18% increased risk of diabetes. And there was another study with like 3,000 women that they followed for eight years and showed that hot flashes were associated with higher insulin resistance, higher fasting glucose levels. So there seems to be some link between vasomotor symptoms and incidence of metabolic syndrome and abnormal metabolic biomarkers. But from what I know, and, and you might know more, but I don't think the causality is totally defined yet, but there seems to be this link What I would love to see is that we could figure out whether decreasing glucose variability and glucose spikes and fasting glucose levels and improve metabolic health, if that would actually improve menopausal symptoms. I don't think that's known yet, but I think there's probably something there. But certainly the presence of those symptoms seems to be associated with higher risk of future metabolic problems. That's just one thing to think about. I know I will be trying to keep my glucose spikes down during menopause just based on what I know, even though there's not necessarily that causal link there. The second thing is it's a beautiful... No, I talked to a lot of Levels members and talked to them about their motivations. I probably talked to 50 members in the past month and a half. And I talked with most of them about what's driving you to improve your metabolic health. What is your motivator? And I'd say for the vast majority of them, it's healthy aging and avoiding dementia. Like dementia is so scary. It's becoming a full-on epidemic. It's happening earlier and earlier in life. And we now know that there's probably a bioenergetic reason why this is happening, that brain cells are actually being underpowered. And this is leading to dementia. And it's absolutely paralleling our general metabolic health crisis. That's a big motivator for people. And like we talked about earlier, women start outpacing men in terms of dementia two to one after menopause, probably because they're becoming more insulin resistant. So if that is a motivator for people listening or the weight gain, that 40s period, 40 to 50, probably 35 to 50 is the time to super dial in the metabolic pillars, the foundation, get prepared for menopause. Like you're preparing for war. <laughs> you have to build extra defenses to be able to handle the hit 
that you're going to get. So you have to start ahead of the game. I'm thinking about that. I'm 35. I'm thinking about that every time I resistance train. I want to go into menopause with a shit ton of muscle so that I can soak up that extra glucose and have that extra boost of insulin sensitivity. And I talked to so many women in that. That 35 to 65 age range is our core levels demographic. And most people are not resistance training. That's just something that I think is like a real important one. And by building muscle and lifting heavy things, it is just a straight up information signal to your body to make more mitochondria. And each, the more mitochondria and recycle mitochondria and improve their efficiency. The more that you can do that and give that lift heavy things, give the signal to your body. It's really that simple. And the more mitochondria you have going into menopause, the more you're going to be able to buffer against the hit that's going to happen with the hormonal changes. There's all the other levers as well. Of course, like eating whole foods, avoiding refined greens and sugars, avoiding processed foods, getting tons of fiber and plant polyphenols. There's the exercise level lever, which is like walking after meals, moving all throughout the day as much as you can to just constitutively soak up glucose and then lift heavy things, build muscle. There's the sleep lever. You've got to be getting good sleep and can't skimp on sleep. It is just like our ultimate metabolic salve is like sleep. It's the chronic stress. You got to keep the chronic stress down. Stress directly hits our mitochondria through our hormones like cortisol. It's avoiding the environmental toxins and the synthetic pesticides and all the artificial crap that's in all our products these days. And it's also just making sure that you're being, what I like to say is having light hygiene, making sure that you're actually keeping your circadian rhythms entrained by seeing daylight during the day and not seeing too much blue light at night because most of our metabolic pathways are downstream of circadian pathways. And if we are confusing our circadian rhythms by seeing the wrong types of light at the wrong types of day, it's going to be a huge metabolic hit. Going into menopause and thinking about what do I do to set myself for success? It really is as simple as dialing in all the different levers that we know support that mitochondrial health. Yeah, I think there's amazing resources. You, Dr. Sarah Gottfried just wrote last year, Women's Food and Hormones, which talks a lot about this. There's people starting to talk about this now, but that would be another recommendation is just start following a lot of people who are talking about this stuff, metabolic health and women's health, that link and keep it in front of mind. It's so important. And you have a book coming out next year because I know people are thinking, I have so many more questions. Trust me, me too, but we will have Casey back when our book is out, which is all about energy, metabolic energy, then we'll have her back to pick her brain and go even further. And I want to wrap this up, of course, by talking about levels, because I myself have learned so much by using levels, having a CGM in even a lot of people think, first of all, a lot of people wrongly, I'm going to go ahead and say it on social media feel, oh, you should only have a continuous glucose monitor in. If you're diabetic, you shouldn't have it in for any of the reason that's really controversial. I have found that not only food intake, of course, impacts glucose, and I can see it real time, but sleep. Let's say I don't sleep that well. I can see what it does to my glucose the next day, or I can see when I'm stressed out, how it affects me in the moment with my blood sugar. Will you give us a rundown on levels and continuous glucose monitors and how we can use it for our food choices, but everything beyond? Absolutely. Levels is the company that I am a co-founder of, chief medical officer of, and our mission is to reverse the metabolic disease epidemic. We are doing this by enabling people to understand how food is affecting their metabolic health by wearing a continuous glucose monitor, which is basically like a wearable sensor. I've got my Fitbit on. It's a wearable sensor that you put on the back of your arm, and it's actually measuring your blood sugar 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It stays on for about two weeks, and it sends all that information to your smartphone. And you're basically getting a movie of a lab test inside your body associated with metabolism. Traditionally, like you said, these have been technology that are prescription only, and they're only really given to people with type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes, overt metabolic disease. And what we came to this conversation with is like, type 2 diabetes is largely a preventable disease. If we can give people this information to learn how food and lifestyle activities are affecting blood sugar earlier in life, before they've reached that clinical threshold, could we potentially avoid some of these chronic diseases down the road? That's a premise. And that is still unclear based on the research, whether non-diabetic people like preclinical populations using this technology are going to be able to prevent disease down the road. But what we do know is that people can learn a monumental amount about 
food and lifestyle by looking at this data stream and having this closed loop biofeedback. We've never really been able to see like, okay, this lunch that I'm eating, what is it doing to my body right now? This particular food, what is it doing to my body right now? Everything's based on hunch and more generalized information about how it affects populations. But there's been really interesting research showing that actually every person responds to different foods differently in terms of blood sugar response. What might cause a huge glucose response in me might cause a very little glucose response in you. That's due to several factors, our level of insulin sensitivity, our microbiome, how much sleep we got the night before. But knowing that having more stable blood sugar levels is not only going to make you feel better today with those cravings, anxiety, fatigue, et cetera, but also help in terms of avoiding chronic disease down the road. It's just an amazing, amazing data stream. There was a study that was published in Cell, premier medical journal from 2015 out of the Weissman Institute in Israel that was called Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses. They took 800 healthy non-diabetic people, they put continuous glucose monitors on them and they gave them all standardized meals. And what you would expect from what we thought about nutrition and food and the way food is digested and absorbed into the bloodstream is that everyone would have the same rise in glucose because everyone's eating the same amount of carbohydrates in a meal and they're having the same exact same meals in terms of micronutrients and macronutrients. They found the opposite of that. People had all across the spectrum and some people who would have a huge spike, a huge glucose spike to a banana and no spike to the standardized cookie Another person would have a huge spike to the cookie and no response to the banana. What that has led to over the last eight years is more interest in personalizing the understanding of how both food, but also food in the context of all the other lifestyle behaviors are leading to a readout of glucose. And I've learned so much, just lots of things. For instance, within a category of food, like fruit, I believe whole foods are good. Unprocessed whole foods from good soil, The body knows what to do with them. They're great. But fruit is a large category, dozens of fruits. If I eat 10 different fruits, I can have such a big spectrum of responses from a five-point glucose response from an unripe pear or a really crisp organic apple to a hundred-point glucose response with maybe grapes. That's I have had that response with grapes before. That's not to say grapes are bad. It is to say that in my body, grapes cause a very big glucose response. And I don't want to have 100-point glucose responses because I feel crappy after that. Now I can look at this category of food and be like, I'm going to favor these foods that don't cause a big spike because I don't care. I like them all the same. I'm not like in love with grapes. If I like these other fruits the same, why not swap them out? And if I'm going to have the higher spikers for me, like pineapple, mango, and grape, I'm going to pair them differently. I will probably eat them earlier in the day. I will probably walk after I eat them. I will probably pair them with a charcuterie board with cheese that has some protein and some fat that has less of an impact. I might eat more fiber with them like chia seeds or something. I'm just going to think about it a little bit differently again with that end goal of not having these really, really big swings in glucose. That's one of those interesting things you can you can learn. It's also made me dial in my sleep so much more because I'm a notorious night owl and I can catch up or drink some more coffee or whatever. But when I actually saw how much my glucose just really frame shifts up like five or six points, my baseline just goes higher. If I'm like, pretty much if I get less than seven hours of sleep, if I'm in that, I try and get seven and a half hours of sleep a night. That's my goal. I know I feel best then. If I'm hitting the like 628 minutes, <laughs> 14 minutes, my glucose is going to be problematic. And in terms of just motivating me to really make sure that's a priority, that's been super helpful because there are so many things to do. Like, oh my God, I got to sleep. I got to walk after meals. I got to resistance train. I got to eat whole foods. I got to cook all my meals. I can't have refined grains. I need to avoid any toxic scents. It's like a lot. So actually figuring out, okay, this lever is a big one for me. If I don't sleep, I get screwed on glucose. I'm going to focus on that. It's helping to prioritize. That's a level shows you through the continuous glucose monitoring. And then we have a bunch of other offerings like the labs we talked about, with your Levels membership, you get access to these sensors. It's a physician consultation. The sensors are shipped from a pharmacy to your house. We have an app that creates all these insights for people. We also have an offering, which is this $100 lab testing so that you can, as frequently as you want, understand more of that like snapshot of where you stand. It's a mix of biofeedback to make progress and then these single time point measurements to have these benchmarks. And our hope is to just create a much more empowered population that thinks about food and and lifestyle in a much more personalized and nuanced way and feels empowered to avoid these conditions that are 
becoming inevitabilities for so many Americans today if you just follow the standard treadmill of Western life. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. And I'm so glad for that access too. And for everyone listening, we will have a link in the show notes if you are interested, of course, and I highly recommend it. It's not an affiliate link. I don't make any money off of it. I am just a big fan of Levels and want people to have this accessibility. It will be in the show notes. You can click on it, have your consult, get your continuous glucose monitor. And even if you do it, once or a month, if, for example, if you're a cycling female, it is really nice to know your follicular phase versus your luteal phase and how it's affected. Do it for a couple months. Do it all the time. Depending on your health goals and your health journey, I support you in all of that. Casey, where can people find you? Where can they learn more from you? This has been fantastic. The best place to find out more about anything that you've enjoyed from this conversation is levelshealth.com. We have an amazing blog filled with pure research breakdowns, practical tips, food tips at levelshealth.com slash blog. We're on Instagram and Twitter at levels and just tons of educational information there as well. I'm personally at Dr. Casey's Kitchen, Dr. Casey's Kitchen on Instagram and Twitter. And those are the main places to find me. Thank you. And then next year, her book is coming out, but we will have her back so we can yes. talk all about that, break that down. We will link everything she just said, the socials, the website down in the show notes. Once again, Dr. Casey Means, thank you so much for coming on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. This has obviously been a super passionate health crisis that's going on and you are helping to pave the way quite literally in solving the problems and getting the resources out there and showing people hope and actionable, practical, tactical, and actionable items that they can take to not feel this way. Because you know a lot of people, a ton of people feel this way. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for all you do, Dr. Carey. I am such a huge admirer of your work and I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we appreciate it so much. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.